So if you want to start by just introducing yourself briefly, and then I'll go into asking questions. Uh, Gerald Horn, historian, writer, political activist. Excellent. Thanks so much. So I, I'm curious to kind of begin by framing the conversation around a theme throughout your work, which is the United States as a counter-revolutionary force throughout the world uh, and as a, a settler colonial society, that being intrinsic to the United States. I have came upon your work by reading about uh, a subject of interest to me, which is South Africa, and reading about you know, you're, you're writing about the United States support to the apartheid regime and the United States involvement against uh, uh, the Angolan liberation movement, the South African liberation movement and the, and the Zimbabwean uh, liberation movement. And then also seeing the parallels that you draw in other instances, the United States intervention in Haiti after its revolution and helping to create and establish the Dominican Republic. So I'd like to talk about this theme in general, which is the United States and its cancer revolutionary uh, tendencies throughout the, the world and in the global south in particular, uh, particularly against revolutionary national liberation and Marxist movements. Let, let's start by talking about the subject that I, that I brought up first, which is the United States against uh, the South African, Angolan, Zimbabwean, and in the Southern African liberation movements. And then I'm also curious about in Haiti as well, uh, as the example you wrote, in your book about uh, the Dominican Republic and how it was started and how this all relates to the US and its establishment as a settler colonial society and the prospects in general, something we're interested in talking about, about the, the foolishness of patriotism in this country, the, the foolishness of thinking that something can be built out of a settler colonial society, that there can be such a thing as socialism in a settler colonial society. This is kind of the, the critique that we're interested in uh, and then showing how the United States has destroyed liberation movements around the world, how this limits the opportunities for uh, for creating something like socialism in this country when it's still constructed as a, as a settler colonial society. Well, I'm not sure where to dive in. Uh, mm -hmm. Perhaps you should ask me a specific question, but no, no, I'll just begin. I'll just make a few mm -hmm. points off the top and then you can ask me a specific mm -hmm. question. One of the points I've also stressed is that when progress has come to these shores, it's oftentimes come through a conjuncture of external factors, global pressure not least. That was the import of the impact of the Haitian Revolution on the United States. It helped to ignite a general crisis of the entire slave system that could only be resolved with its collapse, including in North America. Uh, that was the import of the Bolshevik Revolution, 1917, uh, which presented an alternative, at least for a while, to capitalism, certainly by dint of supporting national liberation movements. You may have gathered that from my book on Southern Africa, for example. And Washington, by the 1950s, found it difficult to appeal to African and Caribbean nations coming to independence, not least because of the conjuncture created by world socialism, Washington found it difficult to uh, appeal to those nations as long as black people in particular were treated so atrociously. That's referenced, for example, in the Brown versus Board of Education majority opinion by Chief Justice Earl Warren circa 1954. And so that creates a dynamic that opens the door uh, a bit 
for the agonizing retreat of the more egregious aspects of Jim Crow. And one of the questions for today, it seems to me, is what will be the impact of the current conjuncture, which even certain bourgeois analysts are suggesting that we might be on the cusp of de-dollarization. The Financial Times of London acknowledge that we're already in a multipolar monetary world, a transition away from the unipolar world that emerges in the 1990s. And uh, with that rise of multipolarity, uh, then the question becomes, what will be the impact domestically? Uh, what, what, if any, win will be placed in the sails of progressive and radical forces in North America? Uh, that's a question that we need to think about. And I'm, I'm very interested in, in your scholarship throughout, you kind of draw this connection between the establishment of the United States as a settler colonial nation with its racist origins to the policy of anti-communism during the Cold War. And this is something that you draw on in the case of, of Southern Africa in particular, how anti-communism and, uh, and racism against the liberation movements in Southern Africa were so intertwined. So I'm curious how, how you see this playing out. I've also read and, and watched a little bit of, of your thoughts on China as well, how this is mm -hmm. kind of playing a similar role with respect to what you're saying with multipolarity and, and China taking a greater position in the world uh, and having very strong connections to African nations, uh, how this kind of racism slash anti-communism plays a very similar role in the approach towards China in undermining China's uh, success that it's made and the, the advances that it's made as a country. And then how we can trace all of this back to the origins of the United States that you've written about in, in the Council Revolution of 1776, how the US is fundamentally a, a reactionary nation that's been developed through Council Revolution. Um, so I'm curious about that. Well, I would actually go back to my book on the 16th century, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, because in some ways, even though it only came out a few years ago, in some ways it's the, the seedbed of what I've been doing for decades. Uh, I don't know if I can explain that chronologically, uh, how something that came out recently helped to shape what I wrote decades ago, but somehow that's how it evolved. What I mean is, as I point out in that book, in order to understand the United States and its predecessors, speaking of London, you have to understand a religion, that is to say the rise of the Protestant faith, so-called in 1517 with Martin Luther and how this is taking place simultaneously with the breakthrough, quote unquote, of the Iberian nations, particularly Spain with its allegiance to Catholicism. And so London is late to the colonial party. And at the same time, it's under siege by the Catholic powers, particularly Spain. And so in my opinion, through a kind of improvisation, 
you see London migrating from religion as a qualifier for being a settler to race or pan-Europeanism, for example. Uh, that is to say, if you look at the history of Florida, which I do in that 16th century book, 1619 notwithstanding, uh, the origins of the original settlements in North America, particularly in Florida, St. Augustine is 1565. And what's striking about the Spanish is that they're oftentimes rejecting non-Catholic settlers, even if they're European. And in some of their settlements uh, south of what is now the United States, they're accepting Africans as conquistadors, for example. And so London moves to pan-Europeanism. If you look at the history of Maryland, for example, uh, Maryland uh, has Catholics uh, as original settlers uh, from its inception in the 17th century. So this move towards pan-Europeanism is accompanied by class collaboration. Class collaboration to me is the key, if not a key to understanding United States of America. Uh, that is to say, if you look at the settlement in what is now North Carolina in the 1580s, you have a diverse range of settlers of class backgrounds, middle class, working class, poor, uh, sponsored by the 1%. And <laughs> that kind of class collaboration uh, helps to shed light, fast forward, to the election of 2020, when Donald J. Trump received 74, 75 million votes, mostly from Euro-Americans of various class backgrounds. Or if you look at the January 6, 2021 insurrection, uh, mostly Euro-Americans of various class backgrounds, from CEOs to shopkeepers to military men and police officers, et cetera. And so what I would argue is that about a half century ago, that particular model of development was on the ropes. You see it with the eruption of the Grenada Revolution, the Nicaraguan Revolution, the Iranian Revolution, uh, with the uh, independence movement coming to fruition in Mozambique, mid-1970s, Angola near the same time. But what happens, <laughs> as they say in the United States, is that uh, Washington is able to execute a, a hell mirror, <laughs> in a sense. In other words, what, what, what Washington basically did was delay the inevitable, admittedly delayed it for decades. What I mean is they effectuated an entente with the People's Republic of China. Interestingly enough, we were marking the 50th anniversary right before the hinge moment of February 24th, 2022. That is to say Nixon, Kissinger to China, an entente on an anti-Soviet basis, leading to massive foreign direct investment in the People's Republic of China, which has now created this juggernaut that bids fair to leave US imperialism sprawling in the dust, but it also helped to uh, complete the encirclement of the then Soviet Union 
uh, with the European nations on one border, particularly the European Union, and Japan, South Korea, and then China. So the Soviet Union collapses in 1991, leading to this so-called Europe unipolar moment. But now, of course, uh, with all this talk, including by the International Monetary Fund of de-dollarization, uh, we may be on the cusp of a new order. Now, uh, we cannot rule out that the Yankees might pull another rabbit out of the hat, <laughs> may execute another Hail Mary pass. Uh, I don't rule that out. But right now, the trend lines uh, seem to be running against the Yankees. And what's ironic <laughs> is that despite spending trillions to oust communists from power, particularly in Moscow, uh, the United States uh, now faces what it would consider the indignity of being surpassed by a nation ruled by a communist party, speaking of the People's Republic of China. And then uh, given the racist origins of this country, uh, a country <laughs> that is not a, as the British used to say, a pure European descent. And so this is one of the uh, ironies of history. Uh, if you went to Hollywood with that screenplay, I'm not sure if you could peddle it, but that's really what it seems that we're facing right now. And I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this because I think it, in, in the context too of the post-Cold War period, uh, in reading about, for example, what, you, what you've put out about NATO as well as an organization, NATO being this, as you said, pan-Europeanism, uh, particularly kind of uh, this Atlanticism of the, the historical connection between the United States and Britain and, and Western Europe, and it seems also to be like, I mean, I, I've been reading a lot recently about the global expansion of NATO as kind of a, a, the expansion of global white supremacy as well. And I always find it fascinating, uh, I guess, to situate this in the context of the counter revolutions in, in Southern Africa, that South Africa under apartheid wanted to join NATO and participate in NATO and almost was accepted by the United States because it probably saw, you know, of course, the rhetoric of anti-communism, but then that is also uh, a level of solidarity with a fellow settler colonial white society, white supremacist society during apartheid. I'm curious how the liberation movements in Southern Africa kind of show, reveal the United States uh, real kind of anti-communist, and it is anti-communist, as well as the underlying aspect of, of white supremacy and that NATO, of course, has has expanded beyond just being the North Atlantic. It's become a global uh, military organization for white supremacy. Now, you know, the United States and uh, Canada, but also making these expansions into Libya, into Iraq, uh, having this alliance with Colombia. Then you have the Australia and uh, and India, the quadrilateral organization. So this is a mm -hmm. global military alliance for the perpetuation of uh, not necessarily all being themselves European nations, but to preserve this kind of pan-Europeanism, white supremacist domination, and white monopoly capital domination. And so I think that that's curious to trace the lineage from the United States counter-revolutions during the Cold War 
predominantly being both anti-communist and anti-national liberation and racist counter-revolution uh, to today where, as you said, the struggle is against a the rising uh, non-European and non-white power in China. And how, how do you think the mask is kind of slipping on this that, it, you know, the rhetoric of anti-communism has historically been used during apartheid in South Africa. That was, that was the rhetoric. It was about, we can't let the uh, ANC and the, the Angolans win because if, if the MPLA wins, it'll be Moscow and, and Luanda. And there, there is a subtle underlying to this, which is obviously racist. And now the mask is kind of slipping with, with uh, the way NATO has begun to operate in this outright, you know, intervene in, in Libya uh, with no mandate, no, you know, clear uh, goal beyond removing a, uh, an African head of state who's challenging the US hegemony. Well, just a few footnotes. Um, this is why we always have to keep studying. Uh, I just found out today that the head of Sequoia Capital, mm -hmm. which is a venture capital firm in Palo Alto, helped to okay. get Apple, Google, et al. off the ground, is Rolof Bota, the mm -hmm. grandson of Pick Botha, who mm -hmm. was the foreign mm -hmm. minister in the last apartheid regime, Okay. interestingly enough. And also, of course, we all know about Elon Musk and his mm -hmm. roots. A and apartheid Clyde, as some people have called him. Apartheid what? Apartheid Clyde. I think somebody called him that. Oh, I see. Well, you know, it, it made me, somebody needs to do a study of, um, you know, in, in my book on Southern Africa, I, I trace some of these connections, but then I sort of cut off in 1994. I mean, that's 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, Bota is only 48. So let's say he was a teenager at the time I cut off my study. So uh, it, it made me very curious as to what other kinds of connections, because Sequoia Capital is a very important pillar in US monopoly capitalism, just like Elon Musk is right. a very important pillar. And so somebody needs to do a study, you know, pick up from where I left off. The other point that I would make is that Certainly, as I've said, and as I've written, uh, we, we should not underestimate uh, white supremacy in terms of trying to figure out the United States of America. But we shouldn't overdetermine it either. Because as I've also tried to point out, I mean, obviously the, the, the deal with China, as a matter of fact, you know, I, I lived through that period. And so I used to have, debates, people, a, a lot of people, believe it or not, just could not accept that the United States was leaning towards China and away from Moscow, because as they saw it, Moscow was white, United States was white, China's not white. So naturally, the two white powers, so-called, <laughs> can't go. Yeah. And it, 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 even though if you looked at the newspapers, it was clear that that was happening, but, but you know, people develop a theory of the case. And mm -hmm. if inconvenient facts enter into the fray, they dismiss the inconvenient facts and stick with the theory of the case. And I say that as well, because another turning point comes, as I've written, I wrote in my book, Race War, which is right behind me, is um, 1904, 1905, when London 
finances the Japanese attack on Russia. Now, of course, I'm, I assume that many people back then would say, well, no, Britain is white, Russia's white, they're gonna gang up on Japan. Well, no, that's not how, how, how it evolved. And so uh, it, it reminds me of, you know, like studying for the bar exam, you, you look for simple devices to try to uh, understand all of this information that's coming at you. But obviously you should not oversimplify because obviously the, as Du Bois, Ho Chi Minh, Nehru, Sun Yat-sen of China all acknowledge, 1904, 1905 was an absolute turning point in world history. It leads directly to the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. Then Japan pays back London by seizing its cash cows of Hong Kong and Singapore, 1941, 1942, a devastating blow to the British Empire from which it hardly recovered post 1945. And so I say all this to say that um, on the one hand, I think part of the problem that some have, certainly not most black people, but some non-black people, is, is that race is an unscientific concept. And so therefore you can sort of dismiss it because it's unscientific. I mean, that's just like saying religion is an unscientific concept so you can dismiss religion. I mean, I think that's ridiculous. But at the same, you have to take into account, but you shouldn't overdetermine it. Uh, you, you should always, of course, uh, keep your eye on the class question, on the financial question, the monetary question, the economic question. Um, at the same time, you're looking at all of these other factors as well. And so uh, that would be my convoluted response to your intelligent question. And I think this kind of attests to the fact that uh, of, you know, comprador nations that are involved in, in upholding the United States as a uh, rule and, and white monopoly capitals rule. And I mentioned Colombia as one country, obviously it's particular regimes in those nations, but it's joining NATO is, is deliberately designed to be part of this continued US war on Latin American revolution, of course. So mm -hmm. it, it's, yeah, like you said, it, it's a changing, even though NATO is, is this global force, it's, not, it's obviously not just European anymore and that has to be taken into consideration. And as, as you mentioned too, Japan, South Korea are very much part of this, this goal of US military dominance against China. I'm hoping that Japan and South Korea can be peeled off. Mm -hmm. But as they say in the United States nowadays, hope is not a strategy. Right. <laughs> and so uh, uh, we'll, we'll need something uh, more substantive than hope. Right. But, but just looking at the forces, I mean, given the fact that China is such a major market, for South Korea and Japan, mm -hmm. given the pressure placed on South Korea and Japan from North Korea, given the unsteadiness of India and the Quad, that is to say, Japan, Australia, India, United States, mm -hmm. but India irking Washington by speaking in soft voice about right. Russian intervention in Ukraine right. and you know using rupee ruble trade to circumvent right. the dollar. Uh, to buy Russian goods, particularly oil. Um, so uh, those forces might ultimately congeal and allow South Korea and Japan to be peeled off, but uh, we shall see. Certainly, 
uh, Japan has hardened Islam uh, in, in recent days. I mean, you, you may recall that during the 2014 Olympics in Sochi, which was boycotted by many of Japan's allies, uh, the Japanese prime minister showed up for the most part. And because of course, Japan wants to retrieve the Kuril Islands from Moscow, which Moscow uh, seized uh, 1945 during World War II. But of late, uh, the line has changed in light of Ukraine. And uh, part of the long range consequences of the Ukraine crisis might not only be de-dollarization, what we also have to figure out is the impact of German rearmament and Japanese rearmament, uh, which are in motion. It's almost as people forgot the lessons of World War II. Um, interestingly enough, a, a footnote with regard to, to German rearmament, one of the things I, I'm trying to figure out, and this is what you and your comrades can do, is so Germany is rearming. They decided to buy these advanced fighter jets from the United States, but not from France. And France and Germany, they're supposed to be comrades in the European Union. So I'm trying to figure out why didn't they buy, buy those jets from France, which of course uh, makes a similar product. Um, and then of course, we have to pay careful attention to the French elections in a few days with Macron being challenged from the left and the right. And if he falls below what the poll, well, let's say he's defeated, that's an earthquake, quite frankly. I mean, that, that's seismic proportions. Even if he wins and Melenchon, the left, gets as a credible turnout, that'll be significant. And even if the right has a credible turnout, that'll be significant because the way we can interpret that is that the imperialist powers with their demonizing of the left, that inevitably like a seesaw pushes a certain sector of the electorate towards the right. And then that certain sector of the electorate which may want to object to the imperialism, French imperialism and their warmongering in North Africa and Northwest Africa and elsewhere might feel that their only alternative is to vote for the right. I mean, that, that's, that may be seen as a tortured rationalization, but there, there, there might be something to that. So in, in any case, uh, I would urge you and your comrades to keep a careful and close eye on these events as they're unfolding. Because as I said, I think we're li living through a very propitious moment with all sorts of alternatives all sorts of roads uh, that are open and nothing is guaranteed because uh, I said the Yankees, they might pull off another Hail Mary. Well, I think first to take what you said about France, for example, uh, we've all been following the election to see in particular that eight of the 12 candidates who are polling above a certain, the important candidates are against France staying in NATO. There's always been that mm -hmm. streak mm -hmm. in French politics of being mm -hmm. against NATO and France, of course, left NATO uh, under de Gaulle and, mm -hmm. and then eventually joined back. Of course, Macron is is one of the and you know the incumbent who is in favor of staying in NATO. So there's this clear kind of 
back and forth within France about whether to stay under the U.S. ages, basically. And then I think that relates to to Germany as well. And it's really and even Germany. I mean, there was some back and forth as well, and not completely wanting to go along with the U.S. cutting off Russian oil, the U.S. ending the Nord Stream mm -hmm. pipeline and sanctions. So there's a little bit of European kind of kicking against the U.S. putting the EU into line. And I think that that reveals that one of the the primary opportunities within this conflict is to see the NATO, EU, US kind of alliance very much uh, the foundation shaking a little bit um, mm -hmm. because oh, this, yeah this this pan Europeanism or this pan uh, this this white order is kind of kind of shaking with this and I think that that for us what we've been most interested in is kind of the response of nations in, in Africa and Latin America and in Asia to this crisis, because it will have major effects for them. It'll have a lot of effects in Syria, of course, for China, for Venezuela, of course. And their responses have all been, been pretty fascinating to see this as an opportunity for this kind of conflict to take advantage of it and to take advantage of this crisis to, as you said, to de-dollarize, to try and get out of the auspices of the US finance regime if possible. So I think that is, that's a curious, front to kind of examine. And that kind of leads to my question as well, which is for those of us in the US who are dealing with the fact that the US with its kind of settler colonial structure politically, it precludes a lot of political opportunities uh, to say the least. Our focus as a group has predominantly been then on the global South to see that this is where there is revolutionary potential to try and throw off the US and to have some mm -hmm some alternative and that's led us to kind of focus on anti-imperialism as the first priority of any group uh you know operating in the u.s being against nato but not just against nato being against the u.s still and using this as an opportunity to eliminate u.s sanctions against venezuela to mm -hmm. you know to use it to weaken the u.s support of israel as well mm -hmm. so that, that's kind of what i'm curious about is how do we use this opportunity as you said this hinge moment uh to the to the maximum opportunity for anti-imperialism to reduce the U.S. dominance of other nations abroad, and what what uh, opportunities and, and possibilities are there? Well, as you were talking, I, I was thinking of the assassination of Aldo Moro. I don't know mm -hmm. if yeah, and the years of yeah, the years of lead in Italy. Yeah, yeah, very very interesting moment because. Mm -hmm. I think that that was a kind of signal uh, mm -hmm. to these uh, centrist leaders in Europe. <laughs> mm -hmm. that this could befall you too. Right, yeah. It reminds exactly. me of the US bombing of the uh, Belgrade embassy in the 1990s uh -huh. during the mm -hmm. NATO intervention. It was a punch in the nose to China, mm -hmm. uh, accident rhetoric notwithstanding, mm -hmm. and, and uh, a signal <laughs> as to uh, what might come. And with regard to Israel, Israel, it's going through an interesting period right now. On the one hand, of course, you saw the meeting of the foreign ministers uh, of the Abraham Accords, mm -hmm. Anthony Blinken uh, joining them. On the other hand, uh, there's upset in uh, comprador circles in, in Israel, those circles close to US imperialism about Israel trying to walk a fine line on the Ukraine right. crisis yeah. and uh, posturing as neutral. Uh, but of course, in that regard, it's in alignment 
with its neighbors. Uh, that is to say, uh, the UAE abstaining on certain resolutions uh, concerning Russia, right. the Saudis, according to Wall Street Journal, not accepting Mr. Biden's phone calls when he was trying to get the Saudis to pump more oil. That was in the Wall Street mm -hmm. Journal weeks ago. Um, the continuing upset in certain parts of Africa about the Libyan intervention. Right and the exceeding of the UN mandate, uh, which led to the abstentions of so many African nations on the General Assembly resolution on Russia, Ukraine. Right. But more to the point, I, I think that with regard to uh, many student organizations, uh, for example, I don't know if there is still a US student association, for example, there used to be. It, it was sort of an umbrella of all the different uh, student groups, uh, official student groups across the country, uh, pushing uh, anti-imperialist resolutions within that framework obviously would be quite useful. Uh, reviving organizations that used to have significant impact, the anti-apartheid organizations that had a strong impact on campuses. CISPUS, right. uh, the Committee on Solidarity with the People of El Salvador, uh, we need more of those kinds of organizations. Um, there is a, an existing framework of Cuban solidarity uh, that could be a stepping stone to that kind of Latin American solidarity, particularly you mentioned Colombia, in light of these upcoming elections. Uh, once again, it could be, it could be very significant, uh, particularly if uh, Petro wins with his vice presidential candidate. Uh, along with Boris in Chile and keeping Castillo afloat in Peru. And um, of course, the, the big enchilada of Brazil uh, coming up soon. So uh, my opinion is, is that an organization such as yours, you don't need advice from me, because I don't really know the, the landscape in, at Cornell or Ithaca or in that region, but I do know there are a number of campuses in that region, and uh, there's a fair amount of activism uh, that hopefully could be generated um, in that region. So anyway, it's 434, so, um, or 534, so I, I guess yeah. it's time to sign off. Yeah, well, well, thank you so much um, for taking some time to speak with me. I, I really appreciate it. and. Uh... I'd love to continue to be in touch. I'll send you our journal as well and the link to the interview once it's published. Right on. Awesome. Okay. Thanks so much. Good luck to you. Thank you. Take All care. Right. Bye.